0: Like an animal talks like an animal must be an animal come here the animals talking animals talking animals
1: Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Dan Perraro, who for 30 years has drawn the comic panel Bizarro. I recorded the interview with him yesterday and what unspooled into a wide-ranging conversation, touching on everything behind the scenes, somewhat detailed glimpse of how he works on Bizarro to his recently announced and initially misunderstood plans for retiring the strip. From his dad taking him hunting as a young boy, to now working as an acclaimed cartoonist whose comics are often laced with animal rights themes. That's just a sampling. We'll hear the whole conversation with Dan Peraro in just a few minutes. Later in the show, we'll pay tribute to Ann Mira's sad passing by playing a classic animal comedy piece from Stiller and Mira. Also later, of course, we'll play Name That Animal Tune, with the prize being a copy of John Katz's book, The Second Chance Dog. Lastly, I need to spend a moment or two discussing WMNF's summer membership drive. For one thing, it starts tomorrow! For another thing, Talking Annals has been assigned a ginormous goal of raising $3,000 in a show that's 55 minutes long. Do not adjust your set. You heard correctly. I've been asked to raise $3,000 in less than an hour. Yikes! The only chance of reaching that goal is by receiving some donations and pre-pledges early. Very, very early. Today, for example, please visit the show website, TalkingAnimals.net, where you'll find information on fast, easy ways to donate and information on the Talking Animals exclusive thank you gifts for your support of this show, including the brand new Talking Animals t-shirt. Designed by artist extraordinaire Mike Beardsley It's very cool, a lovely light yellow It features Charles Darwin And a Charles Darwin gag, no less Come on, where can you get that anywhere else? I don't think so You can see the new t-shirt at TalkingAnimals.net Other exclusive thank you gifts for donations of various amounts Include a pair of amazing tickets to see Steely Dan And Elvis Costello and the imposters, A discounted week-long stay at a Hawaiian condo And Pocket Monkeys Again, visit TalkingAnimals.net for the lowdown on All these fabulous gifts and more, there are early bird discounts for those who donate in the next couple of days. So thank you in advance, he said optimistically. Now, on to the world of Bizarro with a quick heads up. In the last five or six minutes of this interview, which again is recorded inexplicably a hum developed and I did my best to uh, get rid of it but uh, it still still is there uh, so I don't think it really uh, unduly detracts from the discussion but I'm, I'm sorry about that but uh, otherwise I think it's uh, uh, pretty easy uh, listening all the way through including with the hum. So in a conversation recorded yesterday, this is Dan Perraro on talking animals. let's welcome back to Talking Animals, Dan Perraro. Dan, thanks so much for joining us again on uh, Talking Animals. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I I thought we'd start with the news you you announced just last week, news that caused uh, quite a stir in the bizarro world, and then sort of work backwards and widen out from there. Maybe you could discuss what you posted on your blog and and Facebook, for that matter, last Thursday and the reaction that, that that post generated.
2: Yeah, well, I mentioned that uh, after uh, doing Bizarro 365 days a year for 30 years, uh, that I was uh, going to be retiring soon, not... not not retiring from life and not retiring from, uh, uh, from art, but just retiring from Bizarro. And um, I'm going to try to segue into uh, uh, doing more fine art, the kind of stuff that, uh, that doesn't have strict deadlines and doesn't have punchlines involved. Um, anyway, so I, I mentioned that, and I was, I was mentioning that by way of opening up a, a new store section on Bizarro.com, uh, where you could buy everything from prints of my Bizarro cartoons to the original art from my bizarre cartoons, but also, uh, some other kinds of fine art, um, everything from large, expensive oil paintings down to small, relatively inexpensive little sketch cards that I've, uh, drawn sort of these strange stream of consciousness images on, uh, anyway, so that was, uh, that was the, the basis, uh, basically what was, what I was, um, uh, announcing, <laughs> and, uh, but I kind of, you know, and I and I, I, I didn't actually at first make it extremely clear that when I said that I would be retiring from Bizarro, I was was not talking about immediately, I was talking about probably about, you know, two or three years from now. Yeah. And, uh, and so I got, so people got all very, oh no, you're going to be gone, well goodbye and good luck and, how, you know, it just felt like everybody was, everybody was, um...
1: Yeah, it seemed like more, at least from what I gathered, more than just goodbye and good luck, but some people, of course, were up in arms and it's like, oh my God, and, uh, so... so so maybe you should, maybe you could talk for a second about the uh, the second post later that same day, as the phrase goes.
2: Yeah, yeah, so I, yeah. I, I clarified it, but on another post, I, I and um, said you know I didn't mean I was leaving right now. I, I met like in a couple, three years, and so there's still some time. Uh, I will still be doing this uh, on a daily basis for some time. So don't don't stop coming to the blog. Uh, looking at, uh, at the newspaper for my work, because it will still be there for a couple, three more years.
1: Now, I couldn't help wondering you know, what sort of mixed feelings you might have had over this. I mean, on, on the one hand, you're giving, a, or at least intending to give, a large heads up. They plan to wind down Bizarro in the next two or three years, while also mentioning that you were unveiling the store for your original art and revealing, more specifically maybe, your, your sort of secret identity as a painter of fine art. Yet a lot of those cool bits of information you were sharing seemed, at least, to get lost in the, in the midst of the Bizarro was ending, Bizarro is ending maelstrom. So um, <laughs> can you uh, just address how, uh, I don't know if there's yet, yet a further clarification or you just need to let some time go by to kind of revisit some of the, the other points you were making that go with starting to wind down? the strip
2: yeah well um i kind of figured that that um, that that was i mean i i i mean you know part of that actually was calculated because um I'm, I'm, you know trying to uh, I, I have a fan base of people who uh come to the site and read my cartoons and, and read my cartoons in the paper and that sort of thing but but see what's different about that is I'm, I'm looking to build a fan base of people who will buy who buy original art and not that many americans buy original art and i and i say that um uh, statistically speaking, uh, Europeans tend to to have a uh, uh, are, are more likely to to spend money on on uh, artistic or philosophical items, uh, things that they that they find some pleasure owning and having in their homes that don't have a specific use. Americans, on the other hand, are most likely to buy things that have a use. Can you sit on it? Can you wear it? Can you drive it? can <laughs> you get music you get music out of it you know these are the kinds of uh things that americans typically will buy so uh so part of my you know part of my announcing my uh, eventual exit from the cartoon world is to, is to let people is, is to sort of build a certain kind of urgency like you know these these cartoons actually are not being uh, in fact that my my i i don't draw cartoons on computer i mean on uh, on paper anymore i draw them on computer they literally have already bizarre cartoons have already stopped being produced in terms of what you could own for yourself. And so uh, it's a limited supply, which makes a finite supply, um, which makes it more valuable. And part of the idea that I was trying to get across is that, you know, this this stuff is, uh, and and there has been uh, a pretty good response to that. I have been selling a lot of art in the last few days, um, and I and I have been selling. For the past few years, people have been buying more of my art. I think that there's a, that the the art-buying public, the kind of people that do collect original art from cartoonists is uh sort of beginning to discover me, you know. Oh, you know, and these things typically it's the it's the old domino thing, you know, you get to a certain the tipping point, you know, you get to a certain point and boom it just starts to take off. Like mm-hmm. things, you know, creep along slowly for years and then all of a sudden boom it starts to take off because it gets to a certain point where the uh I don't know what it is. It's like the 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 word of mouth factor kicks in, or something. and before you know it, everybody is uh, doing kind of the same thing. And so, anyway, this stuff is starting to take off a bit, and I am starting to sell it. And I kind of just want to tell people, look, no more of these are being made. If you, you know, if you've been a fan for a long time and you've always wanted to get a piece of one of these things from that uh, I've actually uh, worked on with my own hands, uh, I, I I tell people this is a piece of art that has sat in my lap. I usually work in my life. I don't work on a, I work on a desk. I just sit in a, in a chair and have a piece of paper in my uh, lap on a board, and that's how I draw. So if you want something that's actually been in the lap of Dan Ferraro, why, well, this is a perfect chance.
1: <laughs> so it really was a matter of whatever sort of may have gotten lost a little bit in the translation of the announcements of the last week, obviously a, a desire to sort of cultivate that awareness and interest on, on the part of people who may not have come to that naturally. And it's interesting that, that it's distinct from your standpoint and uh, your experience By country. So, does that mean that so far, even though you haven't really touted this kind of availability as much before, that you already have gotten proportionately more interest from other countries in in, in buying some of your art?
2: Yeah, to some degree. I I have found, yeah, there are are people in other countries that are starting to collect my stuff. Um, And uh, I'm not published nearly as widely around the globe as I am in North America, well, specifically the U.S. and Canada. Yeah majority of my newspaper clients but I have published quite a bit in Scandinavia um, some in South America uh, a bit in um, uh, Asia as well um, I get I get mail from my good contacts uh, from India and Pakistan quite a bit so um, so there are uh, yeah there's a there's a sort of a growing international audience for this kind of stuff and and I'm starting to sell some some uh, work to those guys and the, the uh, I mean the information that I'm getting is just statistical information when I say that uh, it is it is known that Americans buy less original artwork things like artwork, uh, than people in other some other countries, older countries. It tends to be, see, I always look at this, um, and, and I think you can look at this politically in a lot of ways, but countries and cultures and regions have kind of um, development pattern. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah, they have a kind of a development pattern. And European countries and cultures are extremely old, and by contrast, American culture. Is a, is much younger, and so you can actually look at the way people vote, the way they, the things that mean something, the, the things that are important to them. It's there's a kind of um, uh, there's a kind of maturity that the, the Europe. Public has in general because they because the culture is so much older and there's a kind of uh, almost adolescence about American culture. Um, we're, we're, we're very quick to which always reminds me. I, I, I we see it. I, I see it politically all the time. Um, we're, we're always like very quick to strike back. Uh, physically or militarily towards something, or at least the people of the street, or they're like, let's let's say, you know, they want to uh, they want to you know bomb everybody who looks like the person that offended them, and that's a kind of I think in in my mind uh, to my mind anyway, it's a, it's a kind of it's a kind of teenager approach to life, uh, whereas things like the, diplomacy and more uh, more measured responses to issues tend to be a more mature kind of a response to things, um, and you can kind of see it in our practice too. Americans tend to buy a whole lot of. Stuff, uh, but they tend not to buy fine art, which is something that can enrich your spirit and soul in a way that a new iPod perhaps cannot. But <laughs> that's what people spend their money on. in The United States, they tend to buy stuff, electronics, mm-hmm. and um, you know, just just uh, electronics and furniture and cars. And
1: whatever. Yeah, it, it's consumerism. It sounds like yeah, over the yeah, yeah. We,
2: yeah, we have a stronger sense of consumerism, and again, I think that's kind of a it's kind of indicative of a younger culture. Um, older cultures are are more aware. Of the value that art can have to a person's life, doesn't just look on the wall; it actually makes them think. Um, and uh, so, anyway, these are the kinds of these are the kinds of things. And I think that my readers, the people that follow Bizarre in the first place, tend to be a little more cerebral and a little wiser. And I'm not trying to. It, it's it's because of the style of. Humor that I have—it's not wide open. A lot of people don't. It's—it's it's really not. It's—it's it's not a cartoon strip for everyone. Yeah. And so the kind of people that follow my work tend to be a little more, uh, I think, philosophically mature, or at least philosophically minded. Kind of people that, that are more likely to think around corners and to—they're—they're uh, they're more philosophical. They're more uh, perhaps have a. Uh, a, a deeper, more complex idea of spirituality. So anyway, that's, uh, so I'm already, you know, I'm kind of preaching to the choir when I say you guys know the value of art in your life. Let's, you know, be some help me get by.
1: Yeah, well, no, that's interesting because it sounds like if I follow you, the core of Bizarro fans are precisely the kind of folks who, who would be more inclined than the average person to buy art. But what it sounds like maybe last week's announcements were about was sort of spurring them. On to to think in those terms, where they otherwise might say, uh, "I love the cartoons, I love reading the blog, I love whatever else uh, Dan is up to," but not necessarily according to them naturally to say, "Hey, I would certainly love to own something that Dan has done."
2: Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people out there. Um that, that think, oh, one of these days I'll grab one of these things. You know, it would be fun to have one of these. You know, like I have a favorite Bizarro cartoon. One of these days I might look into what it would cost to buy that actual original art. And so, you know, I was just kind of nudging and reminding me, you know, this stuff isn't actually being produced anymore. And uh, the more it sells, the fewer pieces I'll have. And so maybe you should start thinking sooner than later if you're looking. And let's face it, I'm, I'm looking to end my, um, my Bizarro income in just a few years. And so I'm trying to trying to build up another source of income sure. on unlike Gary Larson and and um, Bill Larson I'm I'm not so wealthy that I can retire and never look back
1: uh-huh. never, yeah
2: never have another job um, I'm actually a working stiff like most people and uh, I make a decent living but I can't f- afford to just stop working and retire I got to replace my income so yeah. I'm looking uh, looking to build up uh, a, uh, a larger clientele of people that like to buy interesting original art and hoping I can transition into doing that with my days instead of chasing deadlines for another 30 years.
1: Well, let's uh, – actually, let me just let folks know this is Talking I was I'm speaking with the artist and the cartoonist Dan Perraro, who draws the comic panel Bizarro. This conversation was recorded yesterday. So let's talk a little bit about, more specifically, the decision that you did kind of announce that isn't as imminent as people might have first thought, uh, that in the next two to three years, that you would like to sort of hang up the uh, the Bizarro brushes, as, as it were. Is it chiefly the product of just having drawn Bizarro for 30 years, as of this year, and 30 years is a long time to do anything – or are you artistically sort of unsatisfied, maybe even a little bit bored, or just, hey, I want to do these other things in my life more, and I just want to bridge to a point where I can do so? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yes to all? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All of the above?
2: It's, yeah, it's all of those things. Um, cre- uh, creative types, I suspect. I, I get bored I get bored very easily, and I, and I think creative types typically have that. I think that we just tend to get bored with routine more easily than others, Um I'm surprised that I've been able to do this for 30 years. Uh, it's, uh, you know, because there's, it's, it's not hard to draw a cartoon every day. What's hard to, uh, what's difficult about the job is to think up a joke, think up an original joke every day for 30 something years. i I'm, 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 I'm Post 30 years now, 30 uh, 30 years and Next. six months or whatever yeah. I've been doing this, um, and and it's just a it's it's a difficult task. It's a difficult task, and w- within syndication, uh, the, the sort that I have, there is no there's no built-in vacation. You can't take time off because you have the flu or because your dog died or any other kind of a it's just you've got to have the work's got to be there because you've got 350 or however many client newspapers and they're all expecting new work every week they expect a week's worth of cartoons to come in because that's what they've contracted for and there's just no time off uh, to get time off you have to work double hard for several weeks to, uh, and you know which is and that's again the hard it's hard enough just to draw twice as much work but to actually think up twice as many clever ideas in the same amount of time it's just tough it's a, Demanding an intellectually kind of and creatively demanding schedule. Yeah, I do get tired of that, and there's also a lot of limits to what you can do. And
1: how uh, so? I, what I, what what kind of limits are you referring to?
2: Well, the um, newspaper comics themselves, the newspaper pages, uh, because of the way the industry works, they tend to be extremely puritanical. So there there are words and situations that you can get away with on prime time sitcom when every school kid in America is watching and nobody bats an eye but if you put you, but you can't put those kinds of situations or language in a newspaper comic because then a very small percentage of the public will call their newspaper editors and complain and once that starts happening then the editors are like you know they're they busy too they've got jobs they don't want to be they don't want to waste their entire day talking to various people who are angry because they saw the word damn in the newspaper comic. Mm well wow. so uh you know so there there then it makes them kind of likely more likely to uh cancel your cartoon and uh, replace it with a cartoon that doesn't do anything controversial uh and and, and the same thing is true with religion and politics is you know there's certain there's just certain topics that people will complain about and it's still it's a it's a small percentage of the public but it's enough that it ruins an editor's day to have to deal with complaints. And so they're very, in this day and age when newspapers are already looking for ways to save money, they're very, you know, they're very tempted to just, yeah, let's get rid of Bizarro and put in something that's not controversial so I don't have to hear from these, uh, the complaints from these readers. Um, And even though it's a very small percentage of people, like I say, most people are not that sensitive anymore in 21st century America, but there are a small handful that are, and they kind of ruin it for everybody else, fun for everybody else. Um, So yeah, it's, um, uh, so. and then the third thing, um so yeah I am I, I am tired of it. Uh yes I would like to be able to do uh things that are more interesting to me. Um and and the third part is that I just don't have time. I would I would love. I've always wanted to be since I was a kid. I was programmed to be an artist and I wanted to be a fine artist couldn't figure out how to make that lucrative early in my life and I got the idea to be a cartoonist and that seemed to work out and I've made a nice living and I'm certainly not complaining it's been a great thing but it's never what I wanted to do what I wanted to do was be an artist just create interesting art Um, and this was my this was like a compromise it was a, a way to work in a creative field and be my own boss more or less Um, but uh, but not have to be you know working at a job in a cubicle somewhere so um, I've done it for 30 years, and I've had good success with it, and I just kind of feel like, you know, I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to see if I can uh, make enough income off of just selling art to, to continue to live indoors and eat regularly. And if that happens, then I'll be very happy.
1: Well, certainly reasonable uh, aspirations. Living indoors and eating regularly doesn't seem too, uh, too over the top or anything. So, <laughs> But, uh, well, with all this in mind, and it might be particularly illuminating, just to take us through either a typical day to the extent you have such a thing, or even a typical week, because a lot of what you you're saying and what sort of where you're headed with this change is the demand the the grind and the relentless gob that needs to be fed with, with another batch of, of uh, bizarros. so like for example when and how does Bizarro get drawn i mean do you do more than one a day so that you're not always up against a certain deadline or or how you know just tell us a little bit of how the actual magic gets done
2: yeah well everybody uh, everybody has a different ways of working and i've had different ways over the years but the way that i've sort of settled into more or less these days is um uh, i get up in the morning and i get online and i'll spend the first hour or so of the day kind of um Reading articles, uh, I, I will glance at my email just to put out fires, but I don't really want to get head uh, deep into my emails because I'm I'm looking to keep my head space kind of clear so I can write some DAGs mm-hmm. before before my brain gets polluted with with facts. Right uh, and so or or, or, not, or facts of my life, things that people want of me. Yeah. So I kind of tend to stay away from email uh, first thing, and I'll uh, I, I read some newspaper articles, and I'll go around and do one thing or another on the web, and I'll try to come up with with gag ideas, just, uh, one, two, three a day at all. You know, just something, anything. Mm-hmm. And some days you'll get four, and some days you get nothing, but it all evens out eventually. And I just scribble them down in very quick. Warm. and then later um after that that process is done like i say an hour or two in the morning um then i go back and i hit my emails and that takes me a couple of hours just to sort out all the people that want one thing or another uh we all have that in our lives uh, so sure. uh,
1: emails kind of a curse and a blessing <laughs> so, uh, guys yeah. requesting interviews for example radio interviews comes to mind <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah
2: yes yeah, so yeah you know it's that kind of thing and, then there's, and there's people that want reprints there's people that want you know i get out Awful lot of people saying, I remember a cartoon once that had this, this, and this. Was that yours? And if so, can I get a copy of it? I just love it. And so, you know, so then it's like, yeah, I think that's mine. I'm, you know, it's an archive situation. And then I, you know, I could point them to you can get a print of it here, or you can buy the original art, or you can, you know, whatever. So. Mm-hmm. It's just stuff like that. It's really just clerical. Um, And I have an assistant now who helps me with a lot of those things. But basically, she vets that stuff and sends it to me and says, so how do you want to answer this one? You know, it only takes a certain amount of time to have somebody else handling it because you can't know the answer to every single question. Uh, So by this time, it's almost noon. uh, And and all I'm doing is clerical stuff, really. I'm trying to write cartoons and I'm trying to catch up on email. Then I start actually drawing uh, and, you know, knocking out a week's worth of cartoons. And so i have to, you know... I look through all of my notes from all the things that I've written over the past days or weeks or months, and I, and I try to find seven good candidates for a week's worth of cartoons. And once I decide on that, then I start dropping in the captions into the various—I uh, like used to I used to work on paper, now I work entirely on computers, so I open up the moon. A program that I do all this stuff in, and I start putting in captions and I start and I start drawing and that takes a couple of days and then when that's done, then it's all got to be colored. Uh, meanwhile, once a week I have to uh, I write my blog and I, and I post that. Um, then I've got to answer comments from the blog and it's just one thing or another. And this yeah. is also always some kind of a small sideline thing. some kind of like, you know, we're going to put out a book and so I've got to do some extra artwork for that uh, which, uh, you know, I've got... X number of weeks to finish the cover for the for the next book, or so, or a you know greeting card company writes and says, yeah, we'd like to have these four images, or this, these new eight images, or for for the greeting card line, and then so I've got to uh, you know I've got to format those and re, you know resend that stuff out to them in high res in the way that I know that they like it, and so it's always something. Yeah, it's always something, and it really does become a seven day a week job because I work at home, which is uh, I love working at home, but the bad thing is you can never leave the office. So sure. I, I, and I'm working at home I always feel like I should be if I'm at home I always feel like I should be I should be doing something right now I should be catching up on some of this stuff uh, and I I literally work seven days a week
1: and so with what you so, described about the the schedule like up through or so clerical stuff and then switching over to actually starting gags dropping uh, in and and writing the uh, drawing the things like today for example and again you're, you're losing some time talking to me but let's say later I, today we.
2: We'll, to be honest i'm not because i'm i'm actually drawing while we're talking oh good to, all right i can't afford to just sit and talk
1: <laughs> okay well that's that's fair enough that's that's my favorite kind of multitasking that's great so i guess my point is then especially now with that in mind so as we're talking you're drawing so will today you produce one or three or just the the core of oh, m- multiple no. cartoon i mean what what will what will uh, as maybe a t- typical semi typical uh, day what will the output be like um
2: yeah it's uh, yeah I know it's weird because i kind of Jump all around, I, and I do it sort of uh, assembly line fashion. So, for instance, um, today I am working on color for the panels that I turned in last week, and then the, the and that's just the panels, not the strips. Panels are the vertical version mm-hmm. that is sort of what they call portrait. And the strips are the horizontal, which is what people call landscape shape. So, um, so it's like I'll do a bit of each thing each day. Uh, so, you know, it takes a week to produce a week's worth of stuff and answer all my email and create a blog. And basically, I just like it's all packed into a week at some point or another. So, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday, I might be working on panels. Uh, Thursday, I convert those panels into strips. Friday, I start to color the panels. Saturday, I work on the blog that publishes on Sunday. Sunday, I'll take half a day off, but also do some other crap. And then Monday I color the strips from the week before that, you know, so it's like kind of does that.
1: Well, I see what you mean, though. It does sound like it's uh, nonstop and the, just the demands. Uh, it's amazing, uh, 30 years of that, that you're still standing and, and speaking, whether you're drawing <laughs> or not. But, uh... Well, you know,
2: and I, to be honest, I, I always hate to, I, I kind of hate to talk about this because I, I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining. I have a dream job. There's sure. a lot of people that wish they, who, who like to do cartooning or art or anything, and wish that they could make a living at it. And if you can make a living in the United States as an artist of any kind, commercial cartoon fine art whatever if you can do that in the u.s you've you've beat the system because yeah. most people cannot so uh I, so i you know I, I do want i do want to make sure that people know that i'm very grateful for the for the opportunities i've been given to do this yeah um, but oh it's, for uh, sure it's and a, yeah, it's like you can only do the same thing for so long before it drives you nuts.
1: Right, no, no, and and I think too, I think for <laughs> people that are that are fans of your work, I I, I do think kind of a glimpse behind the scenes, even even if it does sound like pretty relentless and and like some days are just a bit of a grind, especially this many years in, I still think it's illuminating to know that there is a lot of work that goes to it. You might just see the bizarre and say, "Oh, that's a great gag," "What a great idea," "God, I love the uh, the artwork there," or whatever, and not even think like, geez, this is everything that went into producing that one that you're." enjoying that day so I do yeah, think it's more,
2: there is more to it I think than yeah, most people realize for uh, sure so I do kind of like uh, So I do like the opportunity to tell people how, how much effort goes into these
1: things. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, this is Talking Animals. My guest is Dan Perraro, who for uh, 30 years has drawn the comic Bizarro. This conversation was recorded yesterday. So, Dan, let's let's spend some time talking about animals, something that's arguably uh, incumbent on us in a, in a show called Talking Animals. In broad strokes, I kind of marked two main phases in the use of animals in Bizarro. Basically, the comic has sort of always reflected an affection for or kinship with animals, but then Bizarro took on more explicit empathy, animal rights, themes, concerns, Maybe about, uh, I would say, a dozen or so years ago. How does that assessment square with with your own? Yeah,
2: um, I have always been sympathetic and compassionate. To animals since i was a kid and i think i have i think i probably have a little more compassion than the average male um and and, and i think that there is a, i think that compassion for i think compassion and empathy come naturally more naturally for, for for females than they do for males that's just my opinion hmm. um but but and, and i think that it's, it's regrettable but it's true i think testosterone and the basic way that the that the that the uh male human mind is configured um, uh, tends to make, it tends to leave less room for sympathy and empathy. Um, that's just been my general opinion about it. But uh, uh, I've, I've always, even since I was a kid, like my dad would uh, occasionally brought me hunting, bird hunting. And as a kid, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, and, and and my dad had a, had a high sense of ethics about that. You don't ever shoot anything that you're not going to eat. So he wasn't one of these yahoos to just go out and look, kill something, and, you know, start shooting yeah. away. It was always a very kind of, you know, it's like it's, it's within the law, you don't, you know, you go after the ones that are uh, in season and large enough and all that kind of stuff. You never, as I said, you never shoot. You wouldn't even think of shooting something that you are not going to eat. And this was this was the way he kind of taught me. And, and I was, uh, you know, I was very excited to go hunting with my dad as a kid because uh, I had a typical kind of 1960s. Uh, 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 60s dad sort of madman era Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was you know he worked a lot he was at the office a lot I didn't get a chance to spend quality I didn't get too much time spend with my dad and so uh, uh when i got the chance i thought it was great but at the same time it would make me feel bad it would you know it, and i didn't want to there's also when you're and i'm talking about a little kid like 10 years old or whatever um there's this idea you know this this sort of feeling especially back then that that if you don't like to do manly things that you're not manly and so i didn't want to complain about it but at the same time i just felt bad for the birds that we were shooting it just i it was just something about it that broke my heart <laughs> mm, interesting <laughs> um, yeah yeah so uh, as, as an adult of course I never I never went hunting again uh, I only did that occasionally as a kid and my dad does not do it anymore he do that so but it's interesting in life, too that, think, but... that
1: that when you first began describing it that it was clear from his standpoint that none you know even though we were talking about going out and, and killing things that there was a, a clear code of conduct nonetheless yeah. which is I think yeah. if you're if you're a kid and you don't get that much hang time with your dad definitely kind of um, makes the, the picture a little bit fuzzier yeah
2: yeah for sure and 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 the thing is i think that there are a lot there are actually a lot of hunters i know that that we animal rights folks tend to really despise hunters Uh, but there are a lot of hunters that have that very same sort of code they 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 believe that there is a a respectable way to take food from nature and a and a and an unethical or wrong way to do it and quite honestly uh I, i i do not think that hunters are the problem the biggest problem when it comes to animal cruelty. Those of us who who just uh, blindly and randomly will eat anything that the store offers are supporting a far more cruel system, which is factory farming. You know, vast, as we all know, the vast majority of meat products come from factory farms these days, and those things are far more cruel than any hunter could possibly be. Uh, at least, at least the animals that uh, people are hunting are. Are living a, a natural life until that moment, which they happen to step into the wrong clearing, and, and boom, they're dead before they even know it. For the most part, that's a much kinder way to to take uh, meat as food than than the factory farming situation is. So, so I, I tend to uh, be much less militant toward uh, toward hunters in general than I am toward. Uh, toward the average consumer who just eats whatever the store, whatever's on sale at the store.
1: So, so no, because I think with that in mind, I was going to ask you to maybe describe sort of why and, and how, I guess, animals have been important to you all these years and how your feelings about animals have, have changed over the years as reflected in Bizarre. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I became um, uh, I, I, I became vegan in 2002. I, I sort of, um, because of a person that I was dating at the time and eventually married and eventually divorced. But anyway, this, this, this person who came into my life uh, made me aware of a lot of these issues that I, and I really didn't know anything about. Before 2002, I didn't know anything about factory farming. I'd never even heard of it. Uh, and so when I realized uh, what was going on with factory farming uh, in in this country, and sort of educated myself on that topic, I just thought, "Wow, I can't. I'm not gonna not gonna cooperate with this." And I just stopped eating all animal products completely, just thinking like, regardless of where they come from, I want no part of it until we can get a handle on this factory farming stuff and get it out of there. So I became vegan, and I became a, uh, and I started, and because um, because I'm. <laughs> As I was describing earlier, because I'm always looking for uh, new gags, new jokes for this uh, relentless schedule of mine. Anything, anything that's going on in my head ends up in the cartoon strip in some way or another. So I started, I started doing cartoons about animal issues because it was the stuff I was reading and learning about. And when I started doing that, I attracted the attention of people who were already into those things, and then also organizations of PETA and Compassion Over Killing and Mercy for Animals and lot of other people so people started contacting me and saying hey you seem to be one of us will you come and speak at our event or whatever and i started doing that and that was a lot of fun i got I, so i became kind of known for it over the years uh among the among the Animal rights, folk. Uh Yeah, I kind of developed a, a whole new audience there, which I I didn't hadn't really previously uh, known existed. But um, yeah, so that was that was kind of um, how that stuff all started. Is it, it just it was a natural progression. Uh, it was things I was thinking about, and so I ended up writing jokes about them and putting them in the cartoons. And then I kind of became known as a, a cartoonist who does animal rights stuff. Uh, yeah, never been you know never been entirely my only. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's never been a time when, when I just sat down and said, I'm going to write some more animal rights jokes. It's just, you know, it's on my mind, so it
1: comes up. But one thing, that too, that's, uh, I mean, some things, obviously, uh, since that time, have, have really reflect that. And then sometimes, I think this was even just within the last week or, or ten days, you'll, you'll sort of actually combine two issues in one panel, like this thing where on this phone lines you, you see these two parrots that presumably have kind of uh, offspring of, of pet parrots sitting uh, right. across from a chicken that's sitting on another phone line near, Nearby, and and you know, one of the parrots says we descended from escaped prisoners, while the chicken says we descended from escaped breakfast. It's like wow, in one you know, <laughs> one panel and uh, two two sentences, uh, you cover a lot of ground there.
2: Yeah, that's that's uh, that's funny. I, I, I recently moved. Uh, I was I was living in L.A. proper, and I moved out to Pasadena, which is uh, just sort of town on the edge of L.A. And uh, anyway, it's a it's a more uh, it's a more a little bit more of a rural neighborhood than what I had in, in Pasadena. and There's mountains nearby. Just a few blocks away, starts the San Gabriel Mountains. It's really beautiful out here. And uh, and we have a lot of parrots. And uh, But I've, I've lived in cities before where there were the small, like, parakeet-sized wild parrots. Then they basically escape pets that begin to breed. And before you know it, this, the city has thousands of parrots. That's happened in a lot of places. Many people are aware of this. Uh, but here in Pasadena, these, uh, some of these parrots, they're like big. They're big green parrots with bright red heads, and I looked them up, and apparently they're called Amazonian red-headed parrots or something like that. But they're large. They're more like the size of pigeons. They're not those little budgie-style uh, um, parakeet size. I mean, um, parrots. But anyway, there's tons of them around here, and I watch them every morning, uh, sitting in the, uh, screaming through the trees around the neighborhood. And it got me to thinking, like, okay, so these are, and this is how this always happens in these big cities, they're like escaped pets. These are animals that were bred. Most of these now, the ones that I see are probably born in, in the wild here in Pasadena, but the ones they came from were, were probably born wild, uh, captured, turned into the pet trade, became pets for X number of time, or, or maybe they did never make it to people's houses. But anyway, you know, that's how these, these wild parrot populations start, is that they escape and breed. So I got to, I was just thinking, I got kind of to feel a cartoon about these parrots. They're like, they're escaped prisoners. They're like, what is that? They're escaped prisoners. Where do I go with that? How can I, what is the connection? And. And then I thought, well, chickens—you know—maybe a chicken on a telephone wire. That would be kind of a fun. You know, the parrots just talking to a chicken. At first, I had them just talking to local birds, and I thought well, the local birds don't have anything funny to say. But man, there's a chicken that you know. So that's where I got the "We're escaped," you know, like they're they're all proud. We're escaped. We're we're descended from escaped prisoners. I actually said slaves at first. I thought slaves, and I thought no, that really slaves. It's not performing
1: any kind of duty for anyone. Anyway,
2: this, yeah. this, this, this is, I'm just walking you through how cartoons get written.
1: Yeah. Anyway, no, no, and again, I I do think that's really really interesting. And like I said, for for one panel, there's uh, there's a lot uh, a lot uh, in there that's. Uh, jumps off uh, jumps off the page. So Well, so Dan, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, but, but uh, one thing just kind of related to this and something you talked about a little bit earlier, I mean, you, you have drawn your share of controversial comics, even though you have to be aware of the editors that are going to get those phone calls and whether dealing with the NRA or Death with Dignity or obviously various animal rights things like we've been talking about. Uh, and on your mildest day, you ain't exactly family circus. So I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on, on the, the whole Charlie Hebdo attack and, and the issues kind of surrounding that. Uh <laughs> (laughs)
2: Uh, Yeah, Um, you know, I don't know as much about what was going on at at the magazine in France when that happened. Um, uh, uh, Events that have been planned since have have actually gotten gotten me thinking. Um, There's... There's this one that just took place in Texas recently. And, um, and, I, and I think, I don't know, you know, here's where I stand on that. Um, the, one, the one that took place, the, the issue that took place in Texas was basically organized by a bigot. She's a woman who despises uh, Muslims and she wants to incite them to violence. And so she created an event where she kind of basically coerced or enticed cartoonists to draw pictures of Muhammad, and then we'll have an art show, and basically she was obviously hoping to incite some kind of violence and further her cause. And and honestly, I think that this woman just wants to pass laws against Muslims or something. And I'm not defending terrorism in any way, by any means, um, because the vast majority of Muslims in this country and all over the world are peaceful people. They're every bit as peaceful uh, as as Christians are in in the United States. And, you know, you've got your occasional crazy Christian who holds up in the in the mountains and shoots at anybody who comes by or decides to go bomb, bomb a public building for an abortion rights issue or something. Fundamentalists and crazy people are everywhere. The point is, um, if you knew there was a crazy guy living across the street from your house, and he was incited to violence every time he heard Beatle music. And so you decided to put speakers on your front lawn face to his house and played Beatle music. Can you really complain if that guy comes over and shoots you? Mm -hmm. That's the way I feel about this topic. You're in... yeah, these people are wrong and they're crazy, but is there any point in inciting this kind of violence? I mean, and the, the cartoons of these guys, like I say, I'm not talking about the Charlie Hebdo because I didn't really follow that story and I didn't look closely at the work they were creating. If you're creating work that actually has a reason to exist and it happens to offend somebody, then yeah, you've got an issue. But if you're creating work intentionally to offend people, to point out the fact that these people are wrong for being offended, I think that's just a fool. I just think it's a fool's errand. Why are you doing that? Why are you even bothering to do it? debt. And that's, you know, I'm so I don't think this is a freedom of speech issue at all. Freedom of speech has to do with governments not stopping you from doing something that you have, a, you know, talking about things you have a right to talk about. That's freedom of speech. It doesn't really pertain to crazy factions who, um, are utterly unpredictable and and non-governmental that's really not a freedom of speech issue anymore that's just a matter of trying to stay alive in a world that has a small percentage of crazy people in it
1: yeah it's so interesting because it's really obviously divided you know groups of well cartoonists groups of writers groups all kinds of people just the public at large and it's it's it couldn't be a more charged uh, issue and and a complex one at that but I just thought uh, be really interesting to get uh, get your take on that. So I think we have just about reached the uh, end of our time. Uh, we've been speaking with Dan Peraro again, who draws the uh, the one-panel great strip. Bizarro and uh, his website is bizarro.com, where there's cartoons, there's blog posts, there's other things, including a cool video from uh, this cartoonist society thing that just uh, uh, you just put up over the weekend that you guys did that was great. And uh, so, Dan, thank you so much for making the time to join us on uh, Talking Animals to keep up the good work until you can switch to a different kind of good work. (laughs) Thanks, Duncan. I really enjoyed it. All right, thanks, man. my thanks to Dan Perera once again. Not to be too mercenary about it, but if you enjoyed that interview or any of the others we've conducted over many, many years here at WMF, please uh, go to talkinganimals.net. How about right now and donate on our behalf in support of WMF and the summer membership drive. On a more sober note, we lost Ann Mira on Saturday. Some newspaper and blog headlines embarrassed themselves by trumpeting that she was Ben Stiller's mom. I mean, she was, of course, but that kind of headline really demeans the enormous influential impact she had in comedy early on working with her husband Jerry Stiller and Stiller and Mira, but in all kinds of other ways, chiefly as an immensely gifted actress and all sorts of work in TV, film, and on stage. And by all accounts, she was an incredibly nice and kind woman, and helped all sorts of women, comics, and actresses get a leg up in show business. So, we're stepping into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner with a vintage piece from Stiller and Mira. It's a longer piece than we typically uh, play here in the Comedy Corner, but hey, it's Ann Mira. Actually, this is Stiller and Mira with a piece called The Whale on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals.
0: We'd like to bring you what we consider a newsworthy item at this time. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Pauline Cedrics, LBC News, speaking to you live from Laguna Beach, California. We are here on the beach at Laguna, where we are witnessing one of the greatest human interest stories of all time. (coughs) Only six hours ago, this man, this human being, was found here on the beach in a state of complete exhaustion. He had been entombed alive for 24 hours in the abdominal cavity of a giant whale. (laughs) This hero of the moment, may I say, the successor to Major Cooper in the eyes of his countrymen has allowed us to interview him. He has incidentally been given bullion by the red cross and a dry towel. Good evening, sir. This is Pauline Cedric, NBC News, speaking to you with all America watching. Just tell us in your own words, sir, how the horrible tragedy occurred.
3: Well, first of all, I came here to California two weeks ago to see my daughter.
0: I see, you are not a native Californian, sir.
3: I'm from New York, my daughter's from California. She lives here with this fella, her husband. Marvelous. They have a house.
0: Excuse me, sir, is this your only child?
3: This is my daughter.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, this man, this father traveled over 3,000 miles to see his only child. Little realizing that tragedy
3: lurked ahead. Go on with your story, sir. Well, they have a house. Yes. Up on the Palisades. Yes. You can see it from here. Yes, I see. A split level.
0: Wonderful. Uh, From the... Get to the point where the horrible tragedy occurred, sir.
3: Well, on the day it happened, I was in the water. Mm -hmm. I went in for a duck.
0: You were duck shooting, sir?
3: I took a duck in the water
0: Oh, you took your pet duck in the water, I think.
3: I went in the water for a duck
0: Do You mean you were fishing for a duck?
3: When you go in the water, you go for a duck in the water <laughs> A dip A dip,
0: a I dip. see a dip uh, For the benefit of our Midwest audience, duck and dip are... <laughs> you uh, took your duck, dip <laughs>
3: I was in the water
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: My daughter hollered up from the house Come up for lunch Then she disappeared
0: uh, Well actually we know now sir That eventful moment It was you who disappeared And not your daughter Would you tell our viewing audience When did you realize It was you who disappeared And not your daughter
3: <laughs> Then she didn't holler help Then I knew it was me who disappeared. But it wasn't my daughter.
0: Yes, of course. Uh, excuse my rudeness, sir. I should have asked you this much sooner, but what is your name? Jonah. <laughs> Strange ironic twist that this man sitting before us should bear the same name as one who long ago endured a similar fate. Go right ahead, Mr. Jonah.
3: Somebody else this happened to him before me?
0: No, a long time ago, sir.
3: This is some place, this California
0: Quite a while ago
3: If it happened before, it'll happen again
0: I uh, don't think you understand, sir
3: They should rope it off
0: Well, I'm sure they you should
3: You don't leave a place like this open
0: All right, Mr. Jonah, please, we're on camera New
3: York, you don't have this This
0: is California, sir Let's discuss the whale The whale, sir, now at what rate of speed were you traveling during this incident?
3: <clears throat> well, you're Yeah. a whale yes. You don't know how fast you're going. <laughs> it's not like you're on a fluke, or a flounder, or a pike. There's no wobble, no yo. No yaw, yeah. uh-huh. He goes by knots. He don't go by miles.
0: Wonderful. Uh, could you describe for us specifically now the interior of the whale?
3: Blubber.
2: <laughs>
3: vol vol.
2: Margaret.
0: Mr. Uh, Jonah, uh... You were there several hours, Mr. Jonah. Now, uh, how actually did you spend your time in this hiatus?
3: It was not a veil. No. We didn't go near Hyannis.
0: It's my fault. I'll rephrase the question. What I meant was the awful moment, the moment of terror and truth, when those mammoth jaws snapped behind you. What did you do then?
3: I sat down.
0: You sat down?
3: Yeah, the waiter said, sit down. The waiter? The waiter, the maitre d', looked like a waiter. Said, sit down, I'll bring you a menu. I looked at the menu. I ordered seafood.
0: You ordered seafood?
3: You're not veil. you're not gonna order chicken or meat.
0: No, I know that.
3: Then the manager came over, said, I'm sorry, you need a jacket.
0: A jacket?
3: That's what I said, a jacket. The <laughs> uh,
0: Mr. Jonah, ladies and gentlemen, has suffered a tremendous emotional shock. The food was good. Of course the food was, Of course, that food was good. We all know what you went through, Mr. Jonah, and we respect you. Not only that, we have a surprise for you. Just before we went on the air, Mr. Ed Sullivan called. He wants you to appear on his program. Also, you have been voted the man of the year by the Laguna Beach Junior Chamber of Commerce. This is too much. Yes. Well, uh, we have a few seconds left, sir. What are your plans for the future?
3: Well, first of all, I want to thank all these people for making this possible. This is yes. very nice. But you should understand one thing. I'm a simple man, you mm-hmm. see. I'm retired. All this excitement, it's too much. I think it's best I take it easy. Stay out here with a friend. I've known him for years on his boat. He made it himself.
0: Wonderful. You'll have a very relaxing trip.
3: It'll be a little crowded. Crowded? Yeah, he has his sons, his wives, his son's wives, the animals, Two cats, two giraffes.
0: Thank you very much. This is Pauline Cedric signing off from Laguna Beach, California.
1: Stiller and Mira. In the late great Ann Mira with the whale coming up at eleven on WNF. It's Rob Lorai and Radioactivity now rolling into the noon hour. It constitutes a full two hours of interviews, phone calls, news, and more. Meanwhile, as a prize for name that animal tune, I'll be offering a copy of John Katz's book, The Second Chance Dog. Get to that in a moment here on Talking Animals. Right now, time for a couple of uh, animal news and announcements. Wanted to start with, of course, the horrible flooding that's going on in Oklahoma and Texas, which uh, fortunately. And sadly, has led to death and destroyed uh, hundreds of homes and wreaked all kinds of other havoc. It also, as tragedy uh, often does, brought out the best in people. For example, when uh, Austin Animal Shelters, which had to evacuate animals because of the flooding, appealed to the local community for temporary or, or even permanent fosters for dogs and cats, there was a huge, huge number of people who responded. In fact, there's uh, a picture that's gone viral online of just this incredibly long line of folks waiting to help and foster those displaced dogs and cats. So, yay. This comes more from my side of the state, but seemed notable in all kinds of ways. Read a little bit of it from the Palm Beach Post. Big Dog Ranch in Wellington, already among the biggest no-kill shelters in the southeast, is going to get even bigger. The nonprofit recently received a go ahead from the Loxahatchee Groves Town Council to build a 55,000 square foot state of the art facility on 33 acres at the corner of Okeechobee Boulevard and D Road, about four and a half miles west of State Road 7. Big Dog Ranch started in 2006 as the Florida Wimarana Rescue. In 2008, it became Big Dog Ranch Rescue, rescuing large breeds of dogs. A year later, Stop discriminating based on size and added little dogs. President Lori Simmons estimates BDRR has rescued nearly 13,000 dogs of all sizes over the past nine years. The new shelter promises to be so modern and innovative that most dog rescuers can only dream about it. The facility, which will be built in three phases, will cost about $5 million, not including the cost of the land. Simmons hopes to celebrate the grand opening in March of 2016. When it opens, the group will be able to double the number of dogs being helped. So we'll uh, track that, but uh, sounds very promising for all kinds of dogs, now of all kinds of sizes. Oh, big dogs. And let's see, coming up uh, locally here, Pet Bell Animal Shelter uh, is hosting those uh, Yappy Hours in St. Pete. And the next one is June 4th. From 6.30 to 8 p.m. at Positively Posh Pooch, 1425 4th Street in uh, St. Pete. And it's uh, a great prelude to the weekend. Pets and their people gather to socialize and shop and have a glass of wine. And uh, Pet Pal Animal Shelter uh, will be there with adoptable dogs. It's great. So uh, for any uh, questions or further information, you can go to PetPalAnimalShelter.com. I'm Tonka Strauss, you're listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is talkinganimals.net. It's time to proceed to Name That Animal Tune. This is a giveaway, but please only participate if you haven't won something from WMF in the last 90 days. And there'll be a prize, a copy of John Katz's The Second Chance Dog, to the first person that calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals. We'll take any uh, guesses that might come in probably off the air because we have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Laura is up next with what amounts to two hours of radio activity. I'll be back next Wednesday, June 3rd, alongside my friend Laura Taylor, seeking your support of Talking Animals and me as part of WNF Summer Membership Drive. But please, please, please don't wait until then. Please donate now. Again, please visit TalkingAnimals.net For info about making a fast, easy donation Takes maybe a couple minutes Three at the most And the, uh information there too about the amazing exclusive talking animals thank you gifts we have for uh, for doing so anyway we look forward to hearing from you then and this fun drive starts tomorrow so of course we hope you'll jump right in and support all the shows that you listen to and love here on 88.5 i'm duncan shaw thanks very much for listening have a good week be kind to animals be kind to others be kind to yourself this is talking animals on WMNF tampa brandon clearwater largo wiki wachi and beyond Community Conscious Radio. Thanks for listening. Speak with you again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. on Talking Animals and certainly hope to hear from you then. Take care now. Thanks.